Welcome everyone, whether you're live here in person or tuning in online or on demand, we're so grateful that you are here. Hey kids, age three, grade three, if you are here right now, I get to invite you to an incredible experience out in the boulevard with Pastor Desiree and her awesome team. So if you want to make your way right out that way, that'll be some great times just for you this morning. And for those kids tuning in online going like, hey, what about me? Go to our website right now, centennialroad.com. There's some great content that you can watch, download, and have your fun as you see fit. Confession time, friends. For as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with food. <laughs> Multiple times a day, every single day, I'm stuffing my face full of things. Wide variety of stuff. My fascination with food went from consumption to production. One of my very first memories of creating something tasty and delicious to eat involves my mom sitting on the kitchen floor and working together to create some freshly baked buns. And in fact, I've got a photo of that to show you right now. Don't I look handsome? <laughs> now, here's the thing about food. In order to create something that's truly delicious, you need great ingredients and then time to prepare it. Great ingredients and time to prepare it. And there's a correlation to our spiritual lives. We need great ingredients and time for it to be prepared. And this morning as we dig into our series, week three, on keep on keeping on, it's gonna be all about what does it look like? What does that mean for us on a daily basis? When I get tired, when I get weary, when I get burned out or worn out or frustrated, or I don't even know where to begin, how can I, how can I keep on keeping on right in that space? We're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 3. If you've got a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn there with me. I'll be reading the first 14 verses from this chapter, and we're going to take a look at what the Bible has to say about this subject matter. Just a little bit of a precursor before I get into this text. The two big ideas that we're going to be talking about this morning are two fancy theological terms called justification and sanctification. In contemporary language, here's what that means. Being made right with God, that's justification, and learning to live from that rightness, that is sanctification. Okay, let's get started. Chapter 3, verse 1. And just a reminder, this is one of Paul's most intense letters that he ever wrote that's in the Bible, and it has got some potent language, starting right with verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made cl as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely, it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. In the same way, Abraham believed God and counted 
And God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, All nations will be blessed through you. So all you who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of law, which, uh, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham. So that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. There's a lot in there. How many times do you have to be called a fool before you get it? More than once, apparently. So Paul's a little bit frustrated with this group of people because he has taken the time, the effort, and energy to spend with them, to let them know what the true message of the gospel is all about. But somehow, they've deviated from that message. This is just chapter 3 in this letter, and already he's hit them on the head a couple of times, reminding them, no, 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 don't forget about the foundation, the basics. Go back to the beginning. What is it all about? He talks about being justified by faith, being made perfect by faith. Justification is just that, being made right with God. And here's what separates Christianity from any other spiritual movement in the world that has ever been in existence or ever will be in existence. It is not about what you can do for God. It is about what God has done for you. Fundamental difference there. Many other religions, all of them in fact, are about balancing the scales of good deeds and bad deeds and hoping that you can do enough to earn the favor of the deity of your choice that you are worshiping. And friends, here I'm, I'm here to tell you with Christianity, that is not the case because there is nothing that we can do that will ever be good enough to make us perfect in God's sight or right in God's sight. That is why he himself, God himself, had to justify us by sending his son Jesus to live a, li live a life here on earth than to experience the most agonizing, excruciating death to be raised back to life three days later. A life for a life. A life for a life. It's not about what you can do from God, for God. It's about what God has done for you. And even though, even though this group of people 
heard that message, received that message, got to experience its hope and truth over time, they deviated from it into something that I'll call checklist Christianity. Checklist Christianity. Well, if I do these things and don't do these things, then I must be okay. I must be on the right side of things when it comes to faith. I must be justified by what I do. But there's a difference, friends, between being justified by our actions and being invited to live a life according to that justification. I want to drill down just another layer with you. The moment that you come to faith in Jesus Christ at a personal, individual level, that's the moment you are made perfect in God's sight. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Jason. You're just saying that I'm perfect. So why then, if I'm already perfect, would I have to do anything in any way, shape, or form from this moment forward to reflect the nature of God in my life? Well, hang on to that question. We'll get to it. You are made perfect in God's sight. Do you know what he looks, looks what he sees when he looks at you? When God looks down on you, if you have a relationship with him, he sees his son, Jesus. He sees perfection. He sees somebody who's worth risking everything for. He, some, he sees somebody that he is desperately, madly in love with, and he wants to shower gifts on you. Gifts of relationship, gifts of sunrises and sunsets and delicious food and community and so many other things. We are made perfect not by our actions, but by our faith. In other words, by who we choose to love. See, the truth about the gospel is that God first loved us. And because of his love, he does everything that he can in his power and his strength to restore right relationship between God and humanity, personified in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's simply by believing in that truth that you are justified, you are saved. That's all it takes is belief. So why do we deviate from that? If it's that simple, why is it that we start adding to it? I think it's because we actually like complexity as human beings. If it's too easy, if it's too simple, it's like, oh, we must be doing it incorrectly. So what if we do this? Okay, what if we say that true followers of Jesus not only have to learn about stuff in English, but if they go back to like Latin or biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew, and if they're able to recite a certain portion of the, of the Bible from memory, then, then that means that they're really truly close to God. Heaven forbid if they wear a hat in church, my goodness, if they wear a hat in church, they're definitely under the curse. We start adding things to the gospel. And it's quite crazy when you think about it. Because if you take the time to just sit back and look at, okay, do I do this? You might discover that this creeps in ever so subtly in your own way of, of thinking and way of life. You start adding things like, well, if, if I go to church this many times or if I serve here or if I do this, then God's going to be happy with me. We start bleeding this whole idea of our actions start justifying us. 
And that's simply not true. The first ingredient, the first ingredient in a rich spiritual life is understanding what God has done for us. That you are justified by your faith and your faith alone. Okay, Jason, but you told me to put a pin in this question. Remember that one? When I said, like, well, if we're made perfect, then, then I can do whatever the heck I want to from this point on because I'm perfect in God's sight. I believe in him. I'm perfect. I'm good to go, right? Let me give you this illustration. Sixteen years ago this summer, my wife and I stood in front of a group of people, family, friends, and people who didn't fit into either of those two categories, but they were there to give us gifts, which was a win. And we professed our love for one another verbally. We exchanged vows. Then we exchanged rings. You could see mine on my finger this morning. And then we signed a legal document. We signed a piece of paper in front of witnesses. And at that moment, we became married. When that legal document was signed, we became married. From that moment on, there's a responsibility that I have as a husband to live as a married person. One of those responsibilities is to ensure that I don't engage in any other romantic relationships with somebody else that isn't my wife. It's a great thing when your girlfriend and your wife is the same person. It's a wonderful thing. I highly recommend it. From that moment on, I learned to live as a married man. My actions didn't justify whether or not I was married. That was the legal document, that transaction that we participated in. But from that moment on, the way I chose to live my life reflects that commitment that I made to my wife. It reflects my love for my wife. In the same way, from the moment when we come to faith in Jesus, the way we choose to live our lives from that moment forward reflects the way we choose to respond to God's love. That's the process of sanctification or discipleship or this. Living like Jesus if he were you. Living like Jesus if he were you. The Bible says that everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. So just because I can doesn't mean I should. Just because I can doesn't mean I should go out and do whatever I want, whenever I want. If I'm going to live my life according to the grace and the mercy and the perfection that God has given me, then why wouldn't I allow my life to reflect his character in some way. Now that's the hard thing. Because that takes time. It's a process. And if there's one thing that we do not like in our culture today, it is wasting time. Wasting time. There's this thing in my kitchen, maybe you have one too, it's called a microwave. And you can put things in this thing, press a few buttons, beep, zap, and something gets warmed up. Do you know what happens in that process of microwaving? You take this nutrient-rich food, presumably. I mean, if you're eating like a pizza pop or something, I don't know. 
but this nutrient-rich food, and you place it in there, and it gets bombarded with radiation. And some of your food from that microwave gets changed at a molecular level. The nutrients of that food shift. In fact, studies tell us that it is much less food-like after that process than before that process. The thing that you're hoping will nourish and sustain you is only going to get you by a little bit. There's this other thing that I have in my kitchen. It's called a slow cooker. There's a reason why it's called a slow cooker. It takes a lot of time. But I got to tell you, when, you when, I, when I put my ingredients in there, a nice roast, some potatoes, a little bit of garlic, onion salt, maybe onion, carrots, some flavoring, a little bit of cornstarch, make it a little bit thicker, some beef broth. You know what I'm talking about. And then I wait a chunk of time, like eight hours. It gets delicious. The secret to using a slow cooker is longer time, lower temperature. Gets mouthwatering. You know when you don't even have to shred that roast, it's just falling apart? Anybody hungry right now? <laughs> it's really delicious. It's amazing. But it takes time. It takes time. And for some of us who have been following Jesus for a long time, we are tired of waiting. We're tired of waiting. We're like, come on, let's go. Let's, let's see this come to a completion in some way, shape, or form. I don't want to keep learning this same thing. Let's microwave this sucker so that I can get on the other side of it. And the frustrating thing is, in God's kitchen, there aren't any microwaves. There's only slow cookers. And it's hard. It's hard when we have to stay in that slow cooker and the temperature, the temperature is like unbearable. It's not fast enough. It's not happening. Why is it taking so long? I get it. It's frustrating. It's painful. It sucks. But I got to tell you, it's worth it on the other side. If you've ever tried to microwave a roast, you understand what I'm talking about. Chewing on leather doesn't sustain you. It's a process. It takes time. And there's this funda fundamental setting in us and human beings that, that is to reject that process for whatever reason. It's this fundamental setting that says, like, you know what? I know, God, you've got a plan for me, but I'm going to super speed that thing. I'm going to intercede. I'm going to counteract your plan with my plan and make sure that I, it gets me to where I need to go. That simply doesn't work. And many of us get frustrated in the middle of all of that because we're like, look, I've been faithful trying to follow Jesus for 30 plus years and I'm not experiencing anything that he talks about in terms of peace and goodness and hope. My question to you is, are you trying to speed up the process? Are you trying to speed up the process? Or are you embracing the process? 
Are you willing to let God move in you, through you, and around you as he sees fit? And the moment that we interject and we try to speed up the process, we become exactly like this group of people Paul is writing about. We try to control our own future. We try to make it happen in our own way, and we deviate from the fundamental root of the gospel, and we become checklist Christians. Do's and don'ts every single day, ticking boxes, making sure that we've done enough to justify ourselves, to justify our actions, and make us feel like we are okay in the moment. But the truth is, friends, that a great life takes great ingredients and time to prepare it. Great ingredients and time to prepare it. Well, what are those ingredients, Jason? In the book of Luke, Jesus has a conversation with a gentleman who's really keen on wanting to understand what this is all about and what it means to follow him. It's recorded in chapter 10. And he asked Jesus something along the lines of, what do I, what do I got to do to inherit ter- eternal life? And Jesus is like, well, what, what do you remember? What, what's been taught to you? And the gentleman replies in about verse 27, he says something like this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds, yeah, go do that. Your heart your soul, your mind, and your strength. Four potent ingredients. What does that look like for today? Well, maybe in 2020 it's like this. Our finances, our fears, our family, our friends, our futures. Can we take all of those ingredients of our lives and can we put them in the hands of Jesus and allow him to create something delicious and beautiful? Knowing that it's going to be a process, it's going to take time. It's going to feel uncomfortable in the moment. It's going to feel confusing at times. But the truth about the process is that God will never leave us nor forsake us along the way. Meaning he will be with us every step of the journey. In the highest of highs, in the lowest of lows, in all the places in between. All of them. If we just would trust the process and know that when we're served something from a microwave, it does not taste as good as when we're served something from the oven. If you're sitting here today and trying to figure out, okay, well, what does that look like for me? Because I feel stuck in a place I'm going to ask you to to consider one of two things. First is this. Do you know Jesus? Have you actually made a commitment to follow Christ in some way? Because if you have not, then I'm going to tell you, you're going to just be spinning your tires all over the place. You'll get no traction, no forward momentum, nothing. You're going to feel stuck trying to be spiritual, trying to live a good life, unless Jesus is your foundation, you have got nothing. 
nothing. I would say start there. How do I do that, Jason? Simply by this, receiving what he has done for you. Believing in it. Believing that Jesus is the son of God. That he died a death. He was raised to life three days later. And being okay with having him dictate and influence your life moving forward. That's it. That's where you start. Maybe your question is like, well, I've, Jason, I've done that. I've done that, I've, in fact, like 20 times, I think. I've, I keep doing it, and it, I, I don't have any forward momentum. What's, what's happening? Have you embraced the process? Have you embraced the process of becoming like Jesus if he was you? Submitting yourself to being in that slow cooker environment, not trying to microwave or fast forward it in any way. Have you embraced that? Can you go back to that place? Can you be okay with waiting, waiting for God's perfect timing? One of the incredible spiritual practices that we get to participate in as followers of Jesus is the practice of communion. And in communion, there are two main ingredients to the activity and the exercise. There's bread and then there's juice or wine if you want to be really biblical. And each of these symbolizes a part of what Jesus has done. There's bread. I only have hot dog buns this morning. <laughs> but they work. The first time that uh, this meal was celebrated, Jesus is connected with a group of his friends, and he has his last meal with them. It's actually an ancient tradition that it's built upon the Passover. And the Passover was this time period of life where the Jewish community was remembering how God had rescued them, justified them by what he did, rescued them from a life of slavery in Egypt. And they would celebrate this this thing annually together. It was a wonderful thing, wonderful moment. As Jesus is gathered with his group of friends around this meal, he picks up bread and he breaks it. And he hands it out and he says, this is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. That bread symbolizes the body of Christ as we eat together this morning, may you receive and remember all that God has done for you. Let's eat together. A little while later in that same meal, there's a cup of wine that Jesus passes around. He says, this is a covenant, a new covenant of my blood poured out for you. The juice is a symbol of the blood of Christ shed his life, given up for yours, so that you can be justified and invited to become sanctified over time. From the moment that you choose Jesus till the moment your life here on earth has come to an end. As we drink this morning, may we remember and receive all that God has done.
Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that there is nothing that I can do or even have to do to make me right with you. That's just incredible. I get to just receive what you have so lovingly and generously provided, and that is a way forward. Today, Lord, if there are people in this space or tuning in online who have yet to embrace that reality, I pray that you would give them the courage to say yes to you. And Lord, I recognize that saying yes to you doesn't mean life is going to be easy, life is going to be full of no complaints or no pain or anything like that. Instead, what it means is that you are going to accompany us in every part of our story moving forward. The highest of highs, the lowest of lows. So for those of us here today that have been through the ringer or feel like we're right in the middle of it, I pray that you'd infuse us with a little bit of your hope and peace and courage so that we can keep on keeping on, even in the middle of chaos. Father, I ask that you'd bless and protect us. I ask that you would shine your face upon us, that you'd give us your grace, your mercy. You'd turn your face towards us, Father, and grant us your peace. And I pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.